Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's and our weekly podcast that we've been having with Dr. Eric Moore, who's an expert in the book of Acts. Today, we'll be looking at chapter three and four as we learn to live and what it means to be in community with one another as the people of God. Hello, friends. I'm very glad to be with you again. My name is Eric Moore. I'm a PhD in New Testament who works at Candler Theological Seminary, which is part of the larger academic institution, Emory University. Um, I work as a postdoctoral fellow there as uh, part of the team that's in academic affairs. Just to recap, these last few weeks we've been looking at the first few chapters of Acts and considering the portrait that Luke provides there. Uh, we began by considering what it means to uh, lead as established uh, witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, last week we looked at Peter's speech and what it means to learn the story of God's work in Jesus Christ and how to relate that, as Peter does in this chapter, to the larger story of God's salvation history. This week we are following up with the story of the new community that is formed as a result of Peter's speech and considering what it means to live together the life of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So let's hop right in there. Now, we mentioned um, that this community is created in response to Peter's speech, but really in response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that is what we must keep in mind as we look at the entirety of Acts, that all of this story is taking place in the wake of that great moment uh, that God accomplished through Jesus, the resurrection. And as a result of Jesus' exaltation, we recall from Peter's speech, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon followers. So that story of the Holy Spirit working is also part of this larger story of Acts. And we recall the important part that the apostles play in this narrative. Really, Peter especially as a a representative of the apostles, and then later on, Paul as the movement of Jesus' followers expands outward into the greater Mediterranean world. The apostles overall are representatives of Jesus. Jesus was the founder, we might say, and they are the founding figures. They act as his witnesses. They witness to the resurrection. Remember in Acts chapter 1 how important it was when the uh, apostles were picking someone to succeed Judas Iscariot, how important it was that they pick someone who had been with Jesus and been a witness to his resurrection. So Luke really emphasizes that as a way to show the continuity between the life and ministry of Jesus that we saw in his gospel to what is happening in the larger story of the church in Acts. So the apostles imitate Jesus, recall, in the way that they perform deeds and the way that they teach. And speeches, of course, are an important example, including Peter's Peter's speech last week of this teaching ministry. So that's a preliminary important to keep in mind. And this week, again, we are discussing the practices or institutions that, as I call them last week, that define the earliest community in Jerusalem. So once we get outward into the narrative that's happening in places like Greece or Turkey, we don't have these types of summary statements that we have here about the community early on, but we might imagine that Luke is trying to tell us that these are the types of things that happened everywhere that the word of God spread and as communities were planted um, throughout the world. Okay, so questions that are really going to guide our, our look at Acts 2 today are what are the characteristics of this community that is founded? And what does it mean to live the story of God's work together? Okay, so let me just pause briefly there as we reflect on the setup, how these chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, what we saw two weeks ago, what we saw last week, ties together with what we are going to look at again today. 
Okay, let's dive right into this wonderful passage. Um, again, I use the word institutions to refer to the practices that we see in the community life of the Jesus followers here. But I, I say institutions not because what we have here are formalized laws like the Ten Commandments, for example, or the laws in Deuteronomy that we see in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. Rather, what Luke is providing is practices which help define the new community. So in the ancient world, when a community was, was formed, one of the most important or first things that they did was establish what are going to be the, the different uh, practices that help say this is what our community is about. This is who we are. These practices included things like festivals that they celebrated. It did include formal laws that were important. It also included names that they used to describe their different political bodies. And so what I'm saying here is that th that is a good analogy for what Luke is recording in chapter 2. These are the practices that helped characterize the early Christians. And in addition to Acts 2, 42 through 47, which is the passage we are looking at here today, Luke does relate practices elsewhere in the Jerusalem portion of his origin story. So if we look further on, just two chapters later, Acts 4, 32 through 35, and then one more chapter after that, Acts 5, 12 through 16, we see other summary statements that record practices or things that are happening among the early Christian community. And these summary statements are designed both to complement or to go along with the narrative as well as to break up the different narrative episodes. So to function kind of like a transition between events in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. So I will refer to these other passages, Acts 4.32 and uh, through 35 and Acts 5, 12 through 16 in the course of this discussion because I think they help illuminate Luke's remarks on community practices in Acts 2. Let's briefly say something about Acts 2, 42 through 47 and the, the, the wider context. The first thing to say here is that um, there is indeed a wider cultural context for what we are seeing. We know from antiquity that there were other groups uh, who strove for some of the same ideals represented in this particular passage. Perhaps one significant distinction here is that the community that Luke depicts is varied in terms of its socioeconomic background, uh, including representatives from different segments of society. Either way, Luke's account functions similar to those other stories, whatever differences there may be. And I'll come back to the, sim the similarities and differences later, but here it's sufficient to note that these stories, and Luke's in particular, present, for, present a picture of like-minded individuals uh, exercising common ideals in community life. And these are practices which help illustrate what it means to live together as Jesus followers in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. Now let's look at the structure of Acts 2, 42-47. And to begin with, we'll note that it has a certain framing. The, the first part of the section, verse 42, lists four separate practices of the community. And the end, Acts 47, 247b, the last part of that verse, offers a summary note of God's work among the community's midst. Quote, and day by day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. End quote. So what this symbolizes in the way that it ends especially, but also the way it begins, is that all the things that are taking place here have the blessing of God, and God is pleased that the community is living properly in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. They recognize what he is doing among their midst. 
Now, the second thing to point out is although the passage at first seems to hold out an egalitarian ideal, right, where everyone's equal in a sense, this is not exactly true. And if we look at verse 242, this starts to become apparent. And here we see that the community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. While the middle two sections of this verse here describe behaviors that the community engages in horizontally amongst themselves, uh, you know, all on equal footing, so to speak, the first and last part of the verse here present a hierarchy of sorts. And the first part of that hierarchy emphasizes the, uh, the elevated role of the disciples, or the apostles specifically. Um, the apostles' authority, in other words, within the life of the community. Remember that they are firsthand witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And so their instruction, where the emphasis is here, like Peter's earlier instruction in chapter 2 that we saw last week, carries a unique weight. And here we see that it helps define the community. As acts unfold, such teaching as is performed by and relayed by the apostles inevitably addresses new situations. But its authoritative nature, the reason why it has such a high importance here in the life of the community, is that it derives from the fact and always relates back to the fact of God's work in Christ. So in one way or another, even though the teaching may be new in certain aspects because of the new situation and what that demands, the teaching is always tethered to God's work through the resurrected Christ. And that is what makes it authoritative for the life of the community. And the apostles' authority is carried through to the next verse, verse 43.3. Luke tells us that many, quote, wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. So here's another way that Luke stresses how the apostles are carrying on the work of Jesus, now resurrected. And though slightly ambiguous, it is worth noting, it is probable that the awe which came upon everyone, and everyone here likely were following to Jesus' followers, that this awe Luke is trying to communicate was due to the marvelous deeds of the apostles. In other words, what they were doing created a sense of awe. And it's not just blank wonderment, right? It is loaded with significance. It is awareness. This idea of awe or fear is always or most often tied to some divine activity. So there's a recognition that what the disciples are doing or the apostles are doing is a unique link to God here through the resurrected Jesus. In Acts 5, Luke will once again stress the importance of the apostles' deeds. There he begins with, quote, now many signs and wonders were being done among people through the apostles in Acts 5.12 before giving the specific examples. Quote, so they carried out the sick into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. Right? This idea that even the shadow of those who have been in contact with the resurrected Jesus might have an efficacious uh, result. And a great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all cured, Acts 5.16. This is not entirely surprising because we've seen that Luke tries to unite the actions of the apostles, their words and their deeds, to what Jesus has done before. They are his imitators. And this helps define not only their role, we are starting to see, but also helps define what the community of Jesus' followers is about. 
this is part of their ethos, having the disciples' authority among them to govern their life together. Let's turn briefly to the other element of hierarchy in this passage. The other authoritative figure in the life of the community is, of course, God. This is signaled first and foremost by the practice of prayer in 242. Prayer is a seminal activity in Acts. Already we have seen the 12 gather to pray with other important Jesus followers in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14, right after Jesus has uh, been resurrected. And there are countless more instances throughout the narrative where prayer plays a major role. But it is critical to observe that this pattern of prayer in Acts is but a continuation of the prayer practices of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Luke records Jesus praying at crucial moments of his ministry, at his baptism, Luke 3, before choosing his disciples, Luke 6, when needing privacy from the crowds that pursue him. And let us not forget that as in Matthew's gospel, Jesus in Luke offers his disciples guidance on how to pray, Luke 11, what we call the Lord's Prayer, right? And prayer for Luke is an indication of proper piety or attention to the presence and will of God. As with teaching, Jesus models this practice, and it is emulated by the apostles and then also the wider community of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, or the believers as they are called in this passage. There are, of course, other indications of piety in this passage, piety to God. In verse 46, Luke recounts how the early believers, quote, spent much time together in the temple, end quote. Recall in the narrative world of Acts, the temple has not yet been destroyed. This will occur in 70 CE, almost 40 years from the setting of these early chapters of Acts. The temple at that time, the time of the narrative of Acts is depicting, was an important site of cultic or religious activity. And by including this note about the believer's activity in the temple, Luke is demonstrating the proper piety of the movement in a way that would have been culturally intelligible. Others would have recognized what was going on because this was an important part of the wider life of the uh, devoted. And it also shows, Luke's mentioned does, that the continuity, that there is continuity between the Jesus movement and the long history of God's salvation, which led to the building of the first temple under Solomon, and then this second temple, the first temple was destroyed, and then the second temple that was built after the Jews had returned from their exile. And that is a big part of the author's program, is showing that what God is doing, though new in certain respects, is in continuity with what he's done throughout history. And we saw that in Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2. And yet another example of piety towards God is given in 47. There, we see that the new community was, quote, praising God and having the goodwill of the people, end quote. The former action, praising God, indicates the believer's state of mind and heart. Overall, their proper orientation towards God, and that is one of thankfulness. The latter statement, the regard in which they are held by the public, relates to what I said about the practice of temple going. This shows that the community's behavior culturally was both intelligible and commended. Luke here is trying to show that all of the practices undertaken by the community were produced by a communal mindset that was focused on worshiping God. Attesting to this was the fact, first of all, that the believers were highly regarded by outsiders, those in the community, beyond the community at large. Secondly, it was attested by the sign of God's favor later in verse 47 that I began by noting, namely that God was adding to their number those who were being saved. So he is blessing them with an increase in numbers. 
So let's pause and reflect on the hierarchy that establishes this framework of communal life. And the hierarchy, of course, is focused on the apostles and their unique role as representatives of Jesus and God himself. And how does that represent a continuity in the salvation history that has been witnessed to by Israel? And if we have any questions, we can address them at this point. And then we'll look more at the communal practices beyond this hierarchy. Okay, let's turn back to the passage. And we've, been, we've seen that this uh, ideal that Luke presents is not completely e egalitarian, right? There's a hierarchy that involves deference both to the apostles as Jesus' representatives and a per proper piety towards God himself. Within this framework, though, Luke is keen to show the community's harmonious mode of living. And what are the indications of this? First, note how the Jesus followers are designated. They are described as believers, 244, and, quote, those who are being saved, 247. What both descriptors imply is that the members of the community are fundamentally alike. Their identity is fashioned by and in response to the actions of another, God working through Jesus Christ. Far from producing resentment, recognition of this reality produces the glad and generous hearts that is mentioned in 246, as well as the praising of God mentioned in 247 that we just encountered a moment ago. In other words, this is praising of God in a joyful way that recognizes his work through Jesus Christ. And this produces a unity among the followers in the community. The major thing that we notice in Luke's profile of the community are the repeated indications of unity. This emerges to begin with from the words and phrases that Luke employs. He writes of the community mutually devoting themselves, 242, engaging in fellowship, 242. And by fellowship, we ought to realize that this is more than simply being together in one another's presence, as we often use fellowship today, but it's probably meant to indicate a oneness of mind and action. Right, So they are together, yes, in presence, but they are there because they recognize their commonality as followers of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And that commonality is what sets the uh, tone for all the practices that they engage in with each other. And then we see the word together used in 44. And also, again, this idea of devotion together connected with participation in the temple, 246, which we discussed earlier. So all of these phrases, recurrent also in the profiles that we find in Acts 4 and 5, signal a profound mutuality and a unity. This unity is also seen in the concrete actions of the community. Life together includes taking meals together. This is in reference to the breaking of bread in 242, which can mean cultic meals, and a cultic meal is something that is done in the pre explicit presence of or as part of a, a ritual action for a deity, such as the Eucharist. Or it could simply mean table fellowship, right? The, the believers are engaging in this, this mundane meal together, but because of their, uh, their belief in the resurrected Jesus Christ, these mundane activities, basic activities, take on a greater significance. 46, 246, we see this idea when Luke says that they took nourishment with glad and generous hearts. In the ancient world, as in many Mediterranean and non-Western cultures today, meals function as a form of deep fellowship. The early community's unity, therefore, is symbolized through a joint satisfaction of the most basic of needs, this nourishment. 
Acts 2.42 also points to another practice defining the early post-resurrection Jesus community in Jerusalem, the sharing of resources. As Luke puts it, the members of the community possessed all things in common. Later in verse 45, Luke elaborates what this entailed. Community members would, quote, sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. This is but one indication of a concern for the marginalized throughout Luke and Acts. Here what the narrative focuses on is a mutual concern for the needy within the community. Now Acts 4, 32-37 elaborates further on this particular community practice. As described in this passage, there was actually no needy members because those who owned lands and houses, that is the wealthy, sold them and gave the proceeds to the poor. The practices recorded here in our passage is the most well-known image of the early Christian community. As I mentioned at the outset, it is important to realize that this is not the only ideal picture of community life in antiquity. Historical and other works depicted similar ideals that were said to govern relations between friends or among members of different communities, for example, philosophical communities. But Luke's account is unique in a couple of respects. First, it envisions Community practices such as sharing of resources taking place not merely between the educated elite, but rather among a broad cross-section of society, like I said earlier. In other words, between those who subsisted at different levels of the socioeconomic spectrum. Second, Luke's account is specific in the role it reserves for the apostles. Here we see again that Luke's ideal is not completely egalitarian. In Acts 4.32-37, we see that the apostles have unique authority. Luke observes in 4.33, for example, that they possessed great power in their, quote, testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, end quote. This offers a segue to their oversight in the sharing of resources. They actually distributed the resources. In other words, because of their role as witnesses, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are also accorded this privilege and responsibility for doling out resources among the communities. The proceeds that were produced by people selling their possessions, for example, their houses or their land, were actually laid at the apostles' feet, Luke says, and it was they who distributed to each as had need, Acts 4.33. Luke follows up this picture of resource distribution with two exemplars, that again demonstrate the apostles' authority. One of these is Barnabas, who sold a field and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, 437. On the other hand are Ananias and Sapphira, who only laid part of the proceeds at the apostles' feet and lied about how much they had contributed. The consequences of the deception seems harsh, the death of both members of the couple. But Luke's overall point in two and four is clear, even if this particular episode seems harsh to our sensibilities. Luke wishes to show a mutual commitment to the least among the community. That there is no one any longer who is needy means that there actually no one who is least. Okay, so let us pause there to reflect on the picture of community life that Luke gives of the earliest Jerusalem Jesus followers. And then we'll transition to consider what relevance that this might have for us. Okay, so Luke has provided this great picture of community life in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, which has been our primary text, but also continued over into summaries in Acts 4 and 5. 
Let us consider the implications for us today as a community of Jesus followers and even those who would proclaim the resurrected Christ in the larger world. What does this text have of significance for us? Well, the big idea here is one of unity. Luke really wants to emphasize this, and this is something that's been other parts of the New Testament, right? Philippians, Corinthians, two letters of Paul, as well as other places. What does this unity entail? Well, it should entail commitment to one another, this commonness of mindset that Luke is trying to emphasize, this commonness of goals. It also entails, I think, a commitment to doing things together, most basically. This can be the most routine actions of life, such as eating meals together, which is emphasized in Luke's passage. It can mean other things. But this idea that we are going through life together, we are of the same mind, we therefore act out of that in the, uh, the activities that we engage in. And so we don't categorize our life in ways that uh, bifurcate the sacred from the profane, for example. But life together, actions together, also entails communal worship. Remember, the apostles and the community were engaging in temple going together. They were praising God together. I think that's something that should characterize our own life as well. We lose a sense of our purpose, our identity as a community when we don't engage with one another in worshiping God. And this is a theme that is echoed, for example, in the book of Hebrews. This unity also means being aware of those in our midst who are left out. It may be left out because they lack material needs. It may be left out because they come from different social circles or they don't have the same education, whatever it is, helping to integrate those members so that there is no essential difference and recognizing that we are all one as believers in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Then, of course, there's this other big idea of worship of God that I just touched on, but we can expand on this to think about the reason why we are a community is because of God's prior act on our behalf, God's work through Jesus Christ, which is part of the culmination of his larger salvation history. And that should instill in all of us this joyfulness that we see in this passage, these glad and generous hearts. We remind each other of what God has done. We remind each other of our identity together. How do we deal with and apply what the passage here says about the unique role of the apostles. I think that may be the hardest thing to implement because we are we are inclined to kind of push against different authority in our lives. And, you know, we may not adopt exact same uh, strictures that Luke has in place here, and especially when we see the harsh consequences for someone like Ananias and Sapphira. But let's just back up and recognize what the apostles represent for Luke. They represent a, a connection with the resurrected Jesus. And I think that is what is important to us, that in our life together, uh, we engage in different practices, of course, whatever our community may be. But those practices and our awareness of those practices should always be oriented to Christ, to what God has done in him. So. We are not acting just out of desire to be good people, but we are acting out of a fundamental identity as the people of God constituted by the resurrected Christ uh, in order to further his kingdom. And that is a good kingdom. So that is what I think that uh, if we look at this passage and consider the relevance for our lives, I think that is what life together really means as the community of God in our context today. All right, well, it's been great to be with you yet again. I look forward to our time together next week as we look at Acts 3 and what it means to love. 
Welcome to this episode of Your Week with St. Luke's, our Office Hour podcast. Um, I'm Pastor Jen, and in this episode, we're going to continue the conversation of the Acts Church and how they formed, but also the difference it makes in our lives to learn, live, and love God together so we can lead our lives like Jesus. And in this particular episode, we're going to be talking about what it means to live God's story in community with one another. And we're joined by Jeremy Green, who is pastor of New Communities. We have Karen Royer, director of adult engagement, and Beth Witten, longtime St. Luker, who has been involved in missions and teaching studies and holding really kind of facilitating long-term groups together. So welcome, everyone. We're glad you're in the conversation with us today. So why don't you tell us how long you've been at St. Luke's and maybe in particular your experience about being in a small group and how that has shaped you through the years. Sure. Well, I've been at St. Luke's since um, 1998, um, so a long time, other than a couple of years where we moved away um, and then came back. But um, I just remember my first experience um, at St. Luke's was kind of not knowing anyone, wandering the halls, and um, a beautiful St. Luke saw us wandering and said, hey, are you interested in finding a Sunday school class? And we were like, sure. Young 20s with two little children, um, not quite knowing where to go. And that was our first invitation into a group. Mm-hmm. And um, that was transformative just uh, to be in that group. It was a group of maybe... Um, people that were older than us, but but where we could really learn and grow. So, so I, I'm a lifelong St. Luca, right? So my small group experience, it starts from, you know, being in the nursery, <laughs> being in the nursery, being in children's ministry, being in youth ministry. I've always sort of had a group, always sort of found a place that had my people. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been great because, as I've gotten older, you find folks kind of like Beth's experience where you you have you find people that have had different experiences than you that can teach you things and can show you their experiences and there's so much to learn there. Oh, cool. I'll share too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I've been here for like two years, but of course my um, connection with St. Luke started with an internship back in undergrad. And as far as uh, small groups have been concerned, how they shaped me, just the uh, diversity and the wealth of experience and uh, influences that everybody brings have, have been interesting to interact with here. It makes you think about things differently. It takes your, or it's taken my perspective from here to here and shown me what the world can be. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because I've been at St. Luke's for 14 years now, mm-hmm. but in terms of small groups, I found myself as a pastor, you end up leading a lot of groups, um, which is very different um, when you're leading it than when you get to be a part of it. And I think my greatest small group experience is when, like yourself, Beth, I was in with a group of people who were older than myself, and they were they were like wise teachers. So as we did life together, they had already been through stages that I was just going through, and I was able to kind of glean and learn and listen 
in between the questions of the study, <laughs> as they just kind of talked about what life was like, I, I really think I tuned in more in that respect than actually what we were studying, mm-hmm. um, which makes me want to ask the question, you know, we're asking everyone to live into this rhythm of what it means to be a disciple or a student or a St. Luker. We're asking people to learn God's story. So really individually study the scripture for themselves, um, but then to practice the story, to live the story in community. Um, How does living the story in a community of people, especially people who are not our own family, um, how does that change us or change the story for you? I I mean, I think when I think about a lot of the work that I do here at St. Luke's and in what we do with DEI and inclusivity, right, we put such a value um, on hearing other people's experiences. And I think so often we only think about that when it comes to racial differences or socioeconomic differences. But I think what small groups do and and what living in these groups and doing life together teaches us is that even someone that is seemingly identical to you, even someone that's living sort of a parallel experience to you has seen God and experienced God in a way that you maybe have never even imagined. You are opened up to ways that God might be moving in your life that you never would have put your finger on if somebody else hadn't kind of helped shine that light in that dark corner for you. I also think um, that it's transformative in the way that it sometimes gives us language. Sometimes I think one of the most magical moments I experience in small groups is when someone hears someone express their perspective on a thing or on experience and they say, I never knew anyone else felt that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, that, that experience can be transforming in the way that it's permission giving to uh, know that it's okay to feel the way you feel and that others feel that way and that you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's kind of, I see it as kind of both. Like, yes, people can reaffirm uh, your feelings, your beliefs, but also challenge. Like, mm-hmm. I think um, in this story of Job that we are kind of delving into, I, I was like, wow, you know, when we put one story on God, like one label mm-hmm. on who God is, um, our perspective of God is this big. But mm-hmm. when we see how God might be acting, like you said, Karen, differently in people's lives, especially people who have different experiences than us, mm-hmm then we get a broader, more beautiful picture of who God is and how he acts and and maybe makes us more aware of how he might be acting differently in my life than what I might have thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because mm-hmm. it opens up our, we, we sometimes do have a myopic vision of God mm-hmm. and God's story that, that really is based on our experience. Like, like mm-hmm. Dr. Scheib had talked about, you know, our narratives are shaped by our culture and our influences. Mm-hmm. And so to listen to other people who have a totally different history in their life experience and mm-hmm. their expression of God helps me realize how how big God and how big the story is. Mm-hmm. Like this, mm-hmm. it, it goes back to, we talked about this in the yeah. Learn podcast. You know, when you take it literally, it mm-hmm. narrows the focus so much. Mm-hmm. But when we need to expand it, not only in our, the historical context, but people's life context, Mm -hmm. I realize how small my vision truly is um, and what that means. 
yeah, you know, it's one of my <laughs> sort of favorite things to do in the, the group that we share in Sisters is to kind of push out on people mm-hmm. and, and to kind of go, what if it was different? What if you put yourself in a different position? What if you considered it from another person's perspective? And it's so challenging to, oh, wait, there is another perspective to, <laughs> to kind of go, oh, wait, there are there are other people in that story. You know, something I said to them a couple of weeks ago, you're the villain in somebody's story. And, and considering that as we live together, not, not that you're a villain, but that our actions and our community has impact, I think is so powerful. So in our scripture this week, it's all about how the church came together and really devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but devoted themselves to each other. So they, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they shared bread, they held everything in common. That's what it means to kind of live the, in community together. Why do you think that that was important for the early church? To kind of huddle in with one another. I mean, they had they were growing by the thousands every time they preached or every time something happened. Why do you think that was so important that they lived together in that tight community? It, it kind of reminds me of the parable of building a house, right? You've got to kind of build that, that strong foundation. I think having, I imagine, right, if I put myself in the story, having Jesus sort of ripped away just as I thought I was starting to get it, would be catastrophic mm-hmm. to my faith. So to be able to come together with other people who have had different experiences, but understand God in a similar way, understand Jesus in the way that Jesus has taught in a similar way, is is sort of, sort of shores up your courage mm-hmm. for what's coming next, right? I think, you know, they, they kind of get this like freedom to like go and build and create all these nations and and reach all these people oh but it's also going to be really really hard and like I don't want to do hard things so to have people to go along with you is so helpful and so reassuring I think yeah I mean we all need that support that that comfort that comes from knowing that there are people there that will help us and I found that in um, my small group that I'm currently involved in. It's like we can reach out when someone's moving or someone has a life um, event that is challenging. Um, hold each other in prayer. Hold each other accountable. It's it's important to, to live that out um, together and not just alone. Right. I also think that there's this historical misconception that the events of the crucifixion and resurrection and all that happened and the disciples knew exactly what that meant. <laughs> and, right, over right, time, right. and over time, it's kind of been watered down. We've been trying to get back to that original understanding, but it's very much like the opposite, where a, a guy died. <laughs> right. yeah. Their guy died. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. a, like he died. And then everybody was left to kind of figure out, what does this mean? Yeah. Uh, and and even though he'd be, been telling them, right? He, yeah. I've been telling you, and I still and I still missed it. Yeah, but even still, like there's, a, there's an entire faith tradition with, with um, practices and uh, an understanding of even what he told them that needed mm-hmm. to be developed, right? That they needed to pack together and look at each other in the faces and look at what it meant to live in their time and say, like, what does yeah, this mean? This and that's also what small groups today help us do. They mm-hmm. let us look at the hard stuff in life and the hard stuff in faith and say, what does this mean? 
Right. I also think of it always, too, as them coming together. Like, they had a mission. They really did have a mission. Like, go take this story out into the world. Go be public theologians. Mm -hmm. And and that idea that we've got to take care of one another so that no one has to worry. So that, you know, you can go do your missions or you can go preach or you can go teach. And you don't have to worry because we got you. Mm -hmm. We're together in this. Mm -hmm. and, And that way there's no... You know, like so often we're trying to lead our lives, you know, lead our faith out in the world. But we're also dealing with our schools and our jobs and our families. But when you do life together, there's a sense of community that I'm not alone in this. And so I don't have to be bifurcated kind of in my understanding of what I'm accomplishing. So, so Beth, you have moved, you had a group together through the pandemic. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And then you've moved to doing the life together, the studies that we're doing. Yes. How has that shifted for you all mm-hmm. to kind of hear it in the study and then talk about it and then have it in worship? Um, I would say it has really like permeated. It, it, it makes it so much more of a whole experience. Um, I think uh, and the and the women in my group have ex, have expressed how much they really appreciate the the lecture, um, yeah. like really kind of that deeper understanding of the Bible. But then taking it and discussing it and how does it mean in our what does it mean in our lives? So I just I feel like it brings the whole week together. Like it's a it's a whole week um, process and just permeates you know kind of life for the week. I love that because mm-hmm. that's the word. I would say that the staff, the directors wanted, they wanted that permeation, like for not just adults, but for children and youth and adults. Mm-hmm. So that also families could talk about whatever the scripture was, because the children have heard it, the youth have heard it, the adults have heard it. And we're trying to allow it to be easier, but also deeper. So that's exactly what we've been looking for. So it's made a difference for you. It definitely has been um, kind of a deeper dive into into this into the life of David and into this um, parable of Job. And um, yeah, we have. I, I think and and I think it has brought up some discussion that you know even a group that has been together for years and years, um, some things that we haven't mm-hmm. talked about. Oh, that's great. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the what are the risks? So we talked about like the benefits of, mm-hmm. of living the story together in community or life together groups or small groups. What are the risks? So immediately what comes to mind for me is this philosophical concept. I can't remember whose concept it is, but it's called the hedgehog's dilemma. Mm-hmm. And you know how most animals, when they get cold, can huddle together for warmth. But hedgehogs, of course, because of their spikes, if they huddle together, they'll harm one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea basically says that humans have the same kind of issue. To be close to other human beings means to experience hurt and harm sometimes and disappointment. Prickly. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and so you have the risk of experiencing that, 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 that hurt and harm that comes often with human connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Then, and the thing that popped into my mind was sort of shared fear. Yeah. Right. If you're with a community that's experiencing a lot of the same things, you probably have a lot of those same fears. Mm. And so Mm. it can sometimes magnify that and it can make it so much bigger than it would have been if you had just been afraid (laughs) by yourself to just like, oh, gosh, but what will happen? And then you get into that what if like 
steamroll. Yeah, and there's there's definitely vulnerability. Um, maybe a feeling like you might be judged if you share too much, or maybe that's a part of that prickly thing. Um, but you know, you know, creating that safe space is is really important. Right. I think that vulnerability of not only sharing yourself, but also what we talked about before, that if I listen to just the three of you, if I listen to Beth and her experience of scripture or Karen or Jeremy's, I'm going to have to shift my experience. I'm going to have to shift my understanding of God. I'm going to have to realize that maybe be vulnerable enough to realize maybe I've, I've had a sheltered or privileged existence and understanding of God. And, and that's a risky thing. I think sometimes we, it's risky to, to open up your understanding of God and the story. Absolutely. I think sometimes we like find, uh, find comfort in this idea that I've, I've got this God figured out. But when you realize, well, I don't really have it all figured out. And uh, I need to maybe shift the way that I've um, thought in the past. That, that can be difficult, right? So how does, last question, this living together and living the story of God, practicing it together as community, what do you think it does for our church? How does it strengthen our church? And our witness, I would add. Sure. It's it back to another animal analogy, right? Like <laughs> fire ants float, right? They, they hold on to each other when there's a crisis and they can kind of create this raft that they can survive together until they get to safety. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this beautiful reminder that, like, we've got each other and we can hold each other up no matter what gets thrown at us. Mm-hmm. I think, too, we challenge each other. Like, we, um, you know, how beyond Sundays, beyond this group, how am I, how am I living out my faith in all of my life? And um, as I think as a group, we challenge each other to, to go out and live that more fully. And when we do that, I think the church becomes stronger. Absolutely. Yeah. The witness is strong. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're teaching each other to, to go out and to live our story and to live God's story in, in ways. And, and, it, and it fortifies one another that... that each other's story matters. Like Absolutely. your particular story of St. Luke's and God matters in the world. So what do you want to plug for living together, especially living together in diversity and community? How can people get involved and what's the first step they need to take? You have to be willing to listen to the story. Mm. You know, before you can learn, live, love, or lead it, you have to be willing to kind of do that first one and, and listen and not only listen to God, but listen to each other. Yeah. And I would say I'd like to challenge people who are part of a small group. Cause I think the challenge, the, the part of the danger is that you become so comfortable with each other. Um, but I challenge each member of a small group to do, to extend an invitation mm-hmm. because I just remember, I just remember how important that invitation was for, for me. So if you're invited 
accept, you right. know. Right. So the challenge is for members of groups to invite and for those who are invited to accept that invitation and step That's into great. that art space. That's great. Thank you so much, you guys. Um, I hope that people will join a Life Together group. We have new ones that are continually starting. If you want more information, you can contact myself or Karen, or if you want to be a part of our new communities. Jeremy is not just doing Life Together groups, but new communities of people talking about God in new ways. Um, so if you'd like to be a part of that, or you know someone outside the church that would be interested in that, let us know. Because um, it's all about not just learning the story for our own personal knowledge, but living it together. See you next week. <laughs>